this week. I am doing all right. I've actually been feeling a little like gloomy lately. I don't know if it's like end of summer going into fall. I don't I don't really know what what's going on. But so I wanted to revisit something actually that I have said before because I lived it. So what do we do? We like take these lessons and we apply them to our lives and then we live through them and then we gain more understanding. So I had a few weeks ago talked about being not afraid to be a beginner, not being scared to suck at something. It was actually, I was talking about this podcast and how I stepped out and did something new and did something that I didn't know how to do. And I was stiff at the beginning and then I, I've, I've loosened up a little bit so that, you know, you've got to at least start. Okay. So I talked about that, that you just need to start and you need to be fine with being a beginner. But I, I, feel like I need to revisit that because so this week I submitted a a research proposal um, and I did it with a a group of people that were kind of looking over what I was doing and it was my first uh, research proposal to submit to an IRB so an internal review board which is something that you need to get approval from for research so anyway I had developed the proposal and I had gone through several drafts of it and then I was sitting on a call with several people who were talking about it and they were putting me on the spot about a lot of the pieces of it and I didn't know the answers and I didn't, I felt very like afraid to be like, I I don't know, I just put it together. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. So, you know, they were asking me really good questions, but because I didn't have the answers, I felt like really inferior. I felt small, you know, and that might have to do something with me, but it really had to do a lot with my inexperience and my insecurity around being good enough to do research proposals, right? Because now I'm somebody that's jumped in the ring and I've said, I do this now. I'm doing a research proposal. So now I'm being treated that way and I'm going, actually, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I wanted to bring this up because afterwards, you know, I felt like insecure and anxious and weird about it. And I kept telling myself like, Rebecca, you're being a beginner. Like, this is a good thing. Like this is, this, these are the feelings you have when it comes to being a beginner and you are going to be insecure and you're not going to have confidence, but that's okay. Like this is the first step and you'll learn from this and then you move on. But the feelings didn't go away of feeling kind of insecure and anxious. So I just, as I try to give you inspiration, as I try to give you inspiring words, what I don't want to happen is us to ignore the feelings that come up with it because it's totally fine to feel like a beginner, to feel the feelings of like, I sucked at that, um, to feel the feelings of like, oh, I did not like how I was during that meeting. I didn't like that I got like sweaty when they asked me questions. Uh, I don't want people to ignore that and like, well, you're supposed to be fine and confident with being a beginner. So, you know, there's just, there's stepping out as a beginner and then there is ignoring the feelings that come with that. So like if you had a kid during a session and they were going to try something new and then they, you could see that they got insecure and they felt silly about how they tried because they weren't good at it. And we were just like, that's okay, buddy. Like good try. Um, that's good. But, you know, to tell them like, oh, well, you know, we're all beginners sometimes, that might not validate their feelings. So I just want to make sure we're validating feelings. And I am telling you, if I had somebody on that call that was like, Rebecca, 
we get this is your first one. Like, this was a really good try. And like, don't worry, we'll get it right. I would have been like, thank God. But I just felt like it was horrible. Um, so in that I could feel that they were like, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. So I guess for the kids, like, if they're stepping out and trying and we're encouraging them to try and so that we're building their self-confidence, we need to do it in a way where we're not hitting them with this like shame all the time, but that we're like, oh dude, that was a good try. Don't worry. Like I totally failed my first time too. And like, this is really hard to do. Like, let's, let's uh, try again. Do you want to try again now? Or do you want to like save it for next time? And like really, really like lighthearted encouragement and that normalizes being new normalizes sucking normalizes mistakes um and then encourages like a second try I I just wanted to come back to that because I was like okay Rebecca like you have all the answers of like okay you're supposed to be fine at being a beginner but I was like but it sucks and it sucks for me too um and I would have liked some encouragement and yes in an ideal world I would need zero external you know encouragement or validation and of course, I'm going to keep marching forward. But for a kid with uh, that has been traumatized, where shame is just like so overbearing in their life, that could really shut somebody down if they didn't get the encouragement or like the, hey, dude, it's totally cool. This is your first time. So I just wanted to uh, come back and tell you like, it's also okay to have the feelings. I Also, don't just march along saying like, yes, it's so fun being a beginner and being uncomfortable. Like being uncomfortable means feeling anxious, means feeling inferior, means feeling like you're not good at something, which doesn't feel good. Um, And hopefully we can be the support people, not just encouraging people to go out and be a beginner. You know, I don't want to just be the person that's like the cheerleader, I want to also be like, and it might suck and I'll be here for you when it does. And I've done a million things that have made me feel like crap. Um, and I get that it's all part of the process, but it doesn't take away the pain and the kind of crappy feelings of sucking at something and maybe not having anybody say that that was a good try at all. Um, so hopefully we can be the people that say good try and let's try again, uh, to the kids that we work with and to ourselves. Okay, I want to jump right into this episode because we're not going to do a part one, part two. Tori is amazing. She is a former foster youth hoping to let her Abba father be known and loved through her stories. She's a national speaker, writer, and advocate for the preservation of family, foster care, and adoption. She's also a wife to Jacob and a mom to two littles and a foster mom to one. She grew up in the foster care system and she had lived in 12 different homes and then she was adopted as an adult. She knows that her calling is to communicate the gospel through the light of adoption and stories that God has granted her. She has founded a scholarship alongside her husband at Hillsdale College for former foster youth in vulnerable populations. She's presented policy to White House policy staffers and works with various nonprofits. You can follow Tori Peterson on Instagram at Tori Hope Peterson, and that's Peterson with an E, so Peterson, S-E-N, and on her website, ToriHopePeterson.com. She is incredible, and I think you guys are going to love this conversation. Let's do this. 
Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you have an amazing story to share and that you also do amazing advocacy work. So you've got good message for our audience. If you could just take us back to the beginning so that people can kind of get to know um, where you come from in the beginnings of your story, uh, what was your, your childhood like? So my first memories are sitting sitting at the piano with my mom's boyfriend and he would just teach me how to play. We lived in a big, nice house in a city and I had a little playground in the backyard. So I would say that my life at four years old looked pretty normal to everyone else. There were a lot of things that happened behind closed doors, like a lot of drug trafficking. And my mom has always been mentally unstable, but I didn't, when you're four, you don't know any different. You think this is just how life is. This is just how moms are. This is just how people make their money. Mm-hmm. And my mom told me that at four. She was like, this is how we make our money. We don't talk about it with anyone else, but this is what we do. And when I was four years old, the the SWAT team, I know it was a SWAT team now, but then it was just these men in uniform. They busted through our door and they took the drugs down from my mom's wardrobe from the kitchen and they put it in my face and they said, do you know what this is? And I didn't know what it was, but I knew better than to say that I knew what it was because my mom had trained me that we don't talk about these things and we definitely don't talk to uniformed men. So I just shook my head no and said, no, I don't know what that is. And that's when I got taken into my first foster home. And it was, it's so interesting because there is a stark difference. I went into the foster care system again when I was 12 and there's such a stark difference because the first time I went in, my foster mom, she set, she set mac and cheese in front of me and peanut butter and jelly. And I was like, I can't eat that. Like I eat steak and crab legs and green beans (laughs) because my mom, we, she trafficked drugs. She had a lot of money. She was good at what she did or bad at what she did. I don't know. (laughs) Like how, what do you say? How do you say that? And then when I went, I lived with my mom until I was 12 years old and my mom worked a lot. She is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. So she has a lot of mania and we know um, as trauma informed people that mania can manifest sometimes into healthy, healthy things. So it's not mania is never healthy, but sometimes it can manifest into healthy things. So my mom, she just worked all the time from sunup to sundown, sold vacuum cleaners, kind of switched the the saleswoman um, thing into a, a better thing. And then my mom ended up getting into a car accident because she goes door to door. You know, she was driving all day, every day from sunup to sundown. And when, before she got in a car accident, I never, I didn't see her very much. And then you were just, the, you were just like, home. Yeah, I had, I had nannies. Um, I had babysitters, you know, I was at school sure. for a lot of the day, but yeah. And I, I was like, you know, nine, 10, you can be pretty independent yeah. at those ages. So my mom got into a car accident and that made her be home all the time. Mm. And she got put on disability 
And it's just, it's so interesting thinking about the COVID crisis now and how parents are home all the time with these vulnerable children and these suffering families and how we know that abuse and neglect is skyrocketing right now because of the crisis that is COVID. And this is exactly what happened when my mom lost her job. She was home all the time with me and the abuse was excruciating. It skyrocketed. It became way more frequent. And so then I went into the foster care system again, and I lived in 12 different homes. I moved around a lot. Sometimes I sabotaged the placement. Sometimes the homes were abusive, and sometimes it just wasn't a good fit. It just Mm -hmm. depended upon the home, why I moved. But then when I turned 18, I decided to emancipate. There's this misconception in the foster care system that when kids turn 18, they get kicked out. And now that's not the case because there's extended foster care in Mm -hmm. all states, uh, in most states until you're 21, in some states until you're 24, and in others until you're 27. So this extended foster care thing is a great, great deal. And usually, and in my case, foster youth choose to emancipate because the, the limitations of the foster care system can be so isolating and they can be so limiting. Mm. Uh, in my case, I couldn't, even though I was 18, I, could, I still couldn't get my license. So that meant if I wanted to go to college, I was probably going to have to stay in, in town. And the rule was I was at least going to have to stay in the state. And I was looking at colleges out of state. Why is that? Is that just like access to car or? Um, so my county it was just for liability purposes like if I was to get in a car accident and it was you know if I was getting a serious car accident and you know being like a manslaughter case where I it was the the car accident was my fault and I hurt someone or I killed someone then it's gonna I'm I'm still a ward of the state Mm. so that makes the state somewhat liable so I couldn't get my license I couldn't like I wanted a tattoo at 18 I couldn't get a tattoo all these I still couldn't go out with friends again yeah, liability you're not issues. an adult like it feels like yeah. you're not an adult yeah or even like a kid like or even a person a teenager. <laughs> yeah or a person like teenagers are allowed to do these things so I decided to emancipate because I wanted I didn't want to be isolated anymore I wanted to go be with my friends and I knew some of the things like I just needed I'm like I need to learn how to drive um, because all my friends know how to drive and they've known how to drive for two years and I have never even steered a car. So I chose to emancipate at 18 and I was instantly homeless. And that's what happens to 50% of foster youth who emancipate out of the system. Mm -hmm. 40 to 50% are instantly homeless after they age out. And I was so fortunate, even though that sounds so excruciating, right? To be homeless and that this happens to so many foster youth. And a lot of times it is, it's a bad situation. But in my case, I was so fortunate because I had recently given my life to Christ and I had just become really involved in my church community. My church community, they're phenomenal. Shout out to Family Christian Center in Defiance, Ohio. They partnered with a nonprofit called Children's Lantern. And Children's Lantern, they raise awareness um, on foster care issues, adoption, and human trafficking. And they did trauma training with our church. They just gave them the language that made foster parents and foster families, foster children feel welcome. And they normalized this thing that oftentimes people marginalize. Mm. So I was home when I was there and 
this community, they just wrapped their arms around me. They loved me well and whatever I needed, uh, they showed up. I was bouncing around from home to home in just different people's homes in my church. And I remember my second year, third year of college, I had to get a really big surgery on both of my legs. And so I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair and I wasn't allowed to take a bath or a shower for a certain amount of time because the the incisions were really big and they couldn't get wet. And um, my hair, people can't, you know, people can't see me on a podcast, but if you can, if you can envision, I am of mixed race and I have very curly hair. And if I don't brush it, it dreads. And so there was a woman, she was a hairstylist. She owned her own hair salon and I needed someone to wash my hair and brush it out. And I mean, it takes me like an hour to brush my hair out still to this day. And so she put me in her chair and she just leaned me back in, you know, in the, in the sink so that of course my legs couldn't get wet. And she spent hours brushing out my hair and then braiding it so that it wouldn't dread. And there are just so many things that my church community did for me uh, from the time, from the time, not just that I gave my life to Christ, but even before that. And I think that's why I was so compelled to give my life to Christ Mm -hmm. because there are these people who showed up and reflected the love of God just so relentlessly to anyone who came in their doors. Their motto was a home for the broken. And I really feel like they live that out well Mm. and they're still living it out well. That's so beautiful. When you were first going into care when you were four and then, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that your mom was arrested, um, and that they couldn't find close family or whatever. And that's why you were put in foster care. Is that, uh, is that correct assumption? Yeah. So I did live with my uncle for some time and I don't know why I don't re- I honestly don't remember if I lived with him before I went to the foster care system or after. I don't know why I didn't go with him immediately, but other than my my mom's brother, we didn't have much family and I don't know. I didn't know my dad's side of the family growing up. I just met them last year through an ancestry oh, DNA wow. test, wow. which was awesome. It was so fun. But my dad had passed away a month before I was born. Oh, wow. So it was just my aunts and my uncles and my first cousins who I had met. And they didn't know about me until this past year. Wow. So when going into the foster care system, yeah, there just wasn't really an option for kinship care or going to live with family. Do you remember your first, like, that first week? Or did you, do you remember? I mean, you were four, so... But do you remember like what it was like to be removed? And then were you communicated with about like if your mom was in jail or if she was going to come back or how that happens? Yeah, I don't think I was communicated with what was going on with my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that's because I couldn't, maybe I was and I couldn't comprehend it. And maybe um, they just didn't do it because as a four-year-old, I don't know if I would understand if someone mm-hmm. said like my, your mom is in jail and I don't know if I would understand, you know, who knows? Sure. The things that I do remember, all the things I do remember were, you know, the very sad and like hard things of like, I refusing to eat food. And then my foster mom being really mad at me. It's very common that 
kids who experience trauma with a bed. And I think this was kind of the first like serious trauma I had to experience was being taken away from my mom. Mm. So I started to wet the bed. And when my foster mom came into the room, she would force me to the toilet and make me scrub my underwear and in the toilet. Mm. And so I don't that I don't think that encompasses all like the entire foster, you know, my entire foster care experience. Sure. But when you're four, especially, there's the psychological thing that our brain does. It's called pruning. And it happens at ages like two to four, then again from like 12 to 14. So that's why often we see kids like in their, we call it the terrible twos. It's because they're learning and their brains are actually, they're like, pruning is when your brain, it like throws out everything that is invaluable and it keeps in everything that you need to survive and to live well. And then as teenagers, like when we're going through puberty, right? We're like, why is our kid, I just told my kid like 12 times to take out the trash. And like, oftentimes they really are forgetting because their brain is going through this pruning all over again. And so at this age, looking back, I think of like, my brain was pruning. And so I think it, it, I think it has a lot to do with why I remember only these really traumatic and difficult things in the home. Do you have a relationship with your bio mom today? Yes, I have a relationship with her. I would say I call it a cyclical relationship because I let her in. I open the doors. I want more than anything, my, my heart my passion is foster care and adoption, but I think I'm so drawn to it all because it reflects the love of God, because Mm -hmm. the greatest privilege of the gospel is adoption. And so more than anything, I just want people to know that God loves them, that Jesus loves them, that he has adopted them as their sons and daughters. And I know that what made me realize that was people living and loving like Jesus. It wasn't like people throwing Bible verses at me or people preaching at me. It was people just showing up and reflecting what love really looked like on earth. And so for my mom, that's what I really want to do because I want my mom to know Jesus. And I know that I can't put that responsibility solely on myself. It's really up to the Lord, but I know that I can be a steward of his love and I can be a part of it. So I open the doors for my mom and usually we, we have a good relationship. We talk for some time and then she'll probably say something really hurtful or she'll do something really damaging. Mm. And so then I just, I just say, I love you. I I forgive you already, mom, but these doors are going to be shut until I feel okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's like a couple hours. And then I... I open the doors back up and I just say, Hey, how you doing? Or I get her text messages and from, you know, I like, I close the text messages too, because they can get really harsh or I close the phone calls because they can get really harsh. Or I, so I open the, the text messages from her back up and I can see her giving me updates and I'll just respond to those. But then after some time, again, she'll do the hurtful thing. So I have to close the doors, wait some time, open the doors. And so it's just this relationship of opening and closing doors, opening and closing my arms and my heart to her and just creating healthy boundaries and trying to figure out what that is 
every day. And that's what it's been really since I was probably 15 or 16 years old. I would say I'm much better at creating the boundaries now than I was then. I'm much better at forgiving mm. than, than I was at say 12 or 15. Yeah. And it's a skill. I mean, I think that all of us kind of struggle with boundaries. And then when you talk about, uh, you know, parent child relationships, you know, it's, it's really difficult to set those boundaries. So it's beautiful that you're like, sure, you know, I'm going to love unconditionally and I'm going to show her the heart of Jesus, but I'm going to protect myself as well. And, you know, when I'm in a space where I can do that, we're going to do that. And when it's not healthy, I'm not, I just, I, I think that's incredible. Um, and it's a skill that we can all work on, uh, for sure. So when you were in foster care or through your whole experience, what were things that like either the community service provider, the school, like people surrounding you did that just wasn't helpful? Like you, you can remember was, was hurtful. What was hurtful? You know, probably the most hurtful thing was people just spoke a lot of negative things over me because I was a foster youth. There are a lot of saddening statistics that revolve the foster care system and especially foster youth who age out, foster youth who are above the age of 12, which I went into foster care above the age of 12. So I think it, everyone just acted like I was like destined to fall into these statistics and it really made me fear my future. Mm. It made me doubt myself a lot and I had a lot of diminished confidence because all of the grown-ups, it wasn't all of them, but it felt like all of the really powerful people in my life expected me to just be doomed because of, not because of things I did, you know, like, but because of things my mom did. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is there no, is there no hope for my future? And Jeremiah 29, 11, my mom gave me my middle name off of that Bible verse. And it was something that just, to me, I didn't know it was a Bible verse. I didn't know it was like God speaking this truth over me that he had a purpose and a plan and a future and a hope for me. But I look back now and I know that like God named me, my mom named me, but God named me. Mm. And my, my first name is Victoria. Everyone calls me Tori, but that Victoria means victory. And my middle name is hope. And there were so many times in my life I asked like, is there, is there hope for the future? Is there anything that I'm, that I'm going to have purpose for? And every time I asked that question, I felt like God showed up and showed me and he still is today. And now I'm, I'm to the point where I don't have to ask that question. He's made it very clear. Yeah. So what were, we all know that like all of us, um, when we endure any types of trauma and just probably trying to survive as humans in this world, we kind of get uh, coping mechanisms that can be harmful for us. They're great and protective for us when we need them, um, when we form them. But like as we move on and evolve in our life, they kind of show up as things that we could let go of. What yeah. were some of like the coping mechanisms you felt like you took on and have been able to kind of heal through yeah so I'm going to talk about the coping mechanisms that nobody thinks of like so often we think of like drugs alcohol these obvious like things you know getting like youth getting into trouble but I felt like I think my coping mechanism was seeking the acceptance of others and perfectionism 
And I want to talk about that. I want to mention that because I think so often we can praise these youth for doing really well, but we can disregard that it's actually trauma manifesting. So I think, um, yeah, just seeking the acceptance of people. And that's really been something that I've had to heal from in the past two years. I, I got married two years ago and there was, you know, in foster care, you enter into families over and over and over again. And the pattern of that is, okay, I have to adjust. I have to become like these people to be accepted and to be loved by them. And you just do that over and over and over again, only to be kicked out or only to have to move to the next home for some reason. And I entered into another family and it was like trauma all over again. And I had to really learn and like see these patterns of like, this is, this is a coping mechanism, trying mm-hmm. to gain people's acceptance, trying to find my affirmation and my identity in humans other than God is unhealthy. I really love that you brought this up because I think it's so, uh, it's really relevant to the people that serve the kids in my program because, uh, and there was another woman that was just on uh, that uh, Christine, she, she was in foster care as well. And she did the same thing. She said that she kind of just conformed and tried to be quiet and tried to be fine and tried to be perfect. And nobody ever talked to her about her traumas or why she came into care. And it was because she put on this like, I'm fine face that nobody ever discussed her, her trauma with her. And I will even have service providers or mentors or whoever say to me, like, this kid's doing great. Like, he's actually, he's a normal kid. He's pretty much a normal kid, you know? And um, yes, like, all kids are just kids, right? Like, we don't need to, like, say, well, it's a trauma kid or a foster kid or, you know, kids are kids. But don't take a kid that's putting on this face, that's putting on a mask, that's trying to fit a form as like, there's actually, I don't see any need for him to even be here or in this program, or I don't think he needs healing because it is something we do, right? Like a mask, a mask and saying we're fine and trying to be perfect and doing exactly just so, so that we can be accepted can be like a really well-learned skill and coping mechanism. And I think you're kind of teaching us not to ignore those kids. Yeah. And foster kids, kids of trauma and vulnerable youth, oftentimes because of their biological parent situation that they come out of, they end up being very high in empathy. So like I was a kid who had to, who had to always kind of feel it out with my mom because she was unpredictable. She was volatile. When could when could she go into a manic episode that's going to result in abuse and neglect? So I'm always trying to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And if you think of a little boy who is, who lives with an alcoholic father, same exact thing, or just like a kid who lives with a vol- like volatile parents who are abusive, same exact thing. They live their lives trying to protect themselves, trying to survive. So they end up being really empathetic they end up being very intuitive. Mm. And so when they come into these homes, it's like, okay, I'm going to use that strength because it's a strength of empathy and intuition, but it can also be so damaging because you're, you're never asking yourself, like, what do I need? Mm -hmm. You're always thinking you're, 
you're so others focused. You're always feeling the needs of other people. And so it's just something to be so aware of that when there's this perfect youth in front of so-called perfect youth in front of you, who's so empathetic and so intuitive and so charismatic, but why are they, like, why are they that way? Are they really using it as a healthy strength or are they doing it because they, there's an unmet need there and that unmet need is manifesting because of trauma? Mm. Ah, I love that so much. So, okay. So what was helpful in, in this path? for you? What, what was really pivotal for you to, you know, not be the statistics that everybody seemed to put on you? Yeah. So I'm just going to go total opposite way and say the opposite of what I just said. It was people speaking life into me. You know, word scripture says that words are life or death and it does not say there is an in-between. And I truly believe that that that's the truth. Like words are life or death. There's no in-between. My track coach, people told him, like, you need to wash your hands of that girl. She's reported abuse and neglect, and it's it's been deemed as, like, lies, and just she has a bad reputation, all of these things. And he said no, and he just kept pouring into me. He kept showing up at track practice every day, encouraging me. And then one day, we were doing a one-on-one practice, and he was like, Tori, you don't have to be a statistic. You don't have to be these things that people tell you you're destined for. And actually, I think you can become a state champion and you can get a scholarship to college, like a full ride to college. He said, like, that, like these are his words. That's what he said to me. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, no one's ever said. Like, I, I seriously cannot recall a time before then that someone laid something so concrete out mm-hmm. for me. Like, you can do this and this is going to be the reward of it. And I was like, okay. So what do I do? Like, what do I do to do that? And he just laid it out for me. He's like, you got to do what I say. You got to train well. You got to eat healthy. You got to work hard. And every day we would text back and forth. He would give me a workout and I would tell him, like, I would ask him questions like, is, is this what I'm eating? Is this okay? And is this workout okay? And this is what I'm lifting today. And we, I just reported back and forth to him every day. And slowly I started to see myself improve. And I remember my history teacher, I love, I really liked my history teacher. So I was really surprised that he said this. My history teacher came up to me in the hallway and he said, um, he said, there's a freshman. I was, I was going into my senior year and he said, you know, there's a freshman coming up from this other school and they're like a really amazing runner and they're probably going to beat you. And I was just so taken back. I was like, I've worked so hard in the past year. And like, I, I want to be a state champion. Those, those, these were like my thoughts. I didn't say this out loud. And I was just like, okay, I just kind of carried on. And, but I thought about it all the time. And again, like speaking life or death, but I felt like even though my history teacher, he spoke death, my track coach gave me these words of life to hold on to. So I would be running and I'd be practicing and I'd like want to quit. It would be a really hard workout. And I would be like, would a state champion quit? Would a girl who wants to beat that other girl that my history teacher said <laughs> is going to be stronger than me, would, would she quit? No, she's not going to quit. And I always ask myself about regrets. If you quit this workout, would you regret it? Mm. And I pushed and pushed every single day. And that year I became a five-time state champion. I was the first individual female at my high school to become a state champion. The first woman of color 
to the first person of color to become a state champion at my high school in the 50th girl in Ohio to win four state titles in one meet. And so it was a really big deal. And I was, a, I was a foster youth and I had emancipated out of the system and everyone had just expected me to like fail and fall on my face. And so it was a really big deal. And I remember throughout this time of like me really wanting to work hard, I was also praying. I had come to the Lord like probably just around the same time that my track coach had told me this. And I kept praying and I said, God, if you allow me to win state, like I was obviously (laughs) really immature in my faith, like trying to make a deal with God, like it works like that. But I said it and I, I made, I made a promise to him. I said, God, if you allow me to win state, I promise I'll give you all the glory. I didn't know really what that meant, but I remember like reading my Bible and like, like talking about giving God the glory and like God's glory and all of these things that I, I really had no idea what they meant. And then newspapers would, they would interview me and news channels would interview me and they would say, how did you overcome this? And I was like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to say here. And I gave credit to my track coach because he really has so much to do with where I am. But I remember thinking, oh, this is what giving God the glory is. It's, it's not how I overcame it. It's how he's overcome for me, how he has already died and done the hard thing so that I can do the hard thing, so that I can overcome the hard thing. And it's God who places these people in my life at this perfect time and encourages them to speak encouragement to me so that I can be where I am today. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So, so mentorships played a pivotal role for you in your life. Oh yeah. Mentorship was so, so huge. And then, um, you don't have to be a foster parent, you know, that's not the only thing you have to do, but my track coach did eventually say, you can come be a part of our family. He wasn't a certified foster parent. He was obviously I was 18 already. And he didn't need to be. And he, yeah. And I could have went off to college and I could have went to those programs for Christmas and Thanksgiving that they're national and they're all over for foster kids to still do Thanksgiving and still do Christmas with a community. And I could have probably went with people from my church. I, you know, I would have had people or I could have went with someone from college, but he was like, you can always come back here for holidays. And I asked my daughters and he has two daughters. So now I have two sisters. He said, I asked my daughters and he says, they can, like, they, they want you to be a part of our family, and I was like, oh, yeah, a lot of people have said that, like, along, along these years, but it really did happen, and he walked me down the aisle at my wedding. I spent every single Christmas with them, and that's who I consider my family. He's who I consider my dad, and it's been very healing. It's not just, like, sometimes, like, families will take kids in, and it's just the nuclear family that loves on the kid. Mm. But it's like, I have a grandma, I have aunts, I have uncles, and they just, they treat me like I am, I'm them. And I am them. I am. Yeah. But there's still, even as an adult, I've been in this family for, okay, I'm 24 now. So it's been six years. And there are still times where I'm like, I'm not really a part of this family. Like I'm I'm not like, I'm not a biological member of this family. I'm not really a part of the family. And they just proved to me over and over again, time and time again, that I am their niece. I am their granddaughter. I am their daughter. I am their cousin. And it's, it's been very healing. 
I love that. I absolutely love that. Is your, um, the, your track coach and I guess your dad now, um, is he go to the same church family that you, um, are a part of? No, he doesn't go to the same church. He goes to church with my grandma sometimes and she goes to a different church than me. Um, we, even though my church community was really, like I said, really strong, um, we just met solely because he was, he was a father figure for three years. I would say that's another thing my community, my caseworkers did well. Um, even though I moved a lot of homes, they didn't move me schools mm. and they didn't move me schools. This, and that's really, really rare. If you move districts, you got to move schools. And there were times that I was out of the school district and they were like, Tori has to keep going to the, to the same school because I did really well academically. I was on track to be valedictorian and because I did really well in track and they knew that I had a strong team and that I had a strong mentor and father figure through my now dad. And so that is one thing that they just did so well was keeping me in that place so that I could continue to be mentored and loved by the people at, at my high school. Yeah, that's huge. I can't imagine. I can't imagine if in your senior year you were moved or, you know, if at any point you were moved while you were making progress. Um, oh, that is like, I was like, oh, this should be like a movie because of the, I, I was like feeling all warm and fuzzy when they were, you were like, oh. I still go there for Christmases and I still belong. And um, it's just really super, super heartwarming. Now, I know that you do, um, like you are a uh, foster youth advocate and um, that you have a platform and you have a blog. So tell me a little bit about your advocacy work and I know that you speak, so tell me about that. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. I like to say that I now, I'm still like trying to find the words for it, honestly. I know that I'm a foster care advocate and I know that I do it in light of the gospel that I, I want people to know the love of the Lord. So I, about a year ago, I was, I started to get pretty focused, um, on social media, trying to share my story, um, trying to amplify other foster youth's voices and being a part of the big C church is another thing. Like just making myself accessible to not just my church, like in my community, but to churches nationally churches globally how can we partner to help vulnerable children and foster youth and I think it was it was probably about a year ago um, I heard a woman named Danielle Strickland speak and it was so her talk was so moving I was in one of the lowest places of my life like I just felt so sad like I was so almost like I was purposeless again. Like I didn't know what I was doing. There was someone in my community in my church community who had a good reputation, who is esteemed. And they said, I think you need to just drop this foster care and adoption stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you're just kind of living in the foster care success and it's not real success. And I was like, yeah, they're I like, they, they are who they are. Like they have a good reputation, their esteem, they have this title. I'm going to just do what they say. And so I stopped, I stopped the advocacy. And I, then I heard this woman speak and it was so clear to me, like, 
yeah, maybe that's what one of God's people said. Like they were in the church, but God was like, that's not what I said. Mm. And you need to learn how to discern the difference. Mm. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. So I reached out to this Daniel Strickland woman and I said, thank you so much for your talk. It's like changed the trajectory of my life. I had no idea where I was going. I dropped all of the things that I felt like God had called me to do. And I was just like, thank you. She works with women who have been human trafficked. And I said, you know, approximately 60% of women who are human trafficked are involved in the foster care system. And I don't know why, but I'd love to figure it out. And I'd love to help you if I can. And I'd love to learn from you. And she said, okay, let's do it. (laughs) And I feel like that was, she gave me the confidence that I needed. It was, it was almost like all over again, like what Scott did for me. Like she gave me the confidence I needed when I felt like I was in a really low place. Uh, She encouraged me and she's just been like, she's been an ally to me. She has been this phenomenal mentor when you're in Christian circles, it can be hard to find women who get on stage and who speak, who write. Um, and sometimes it feels like, is this wrong? Like, is it wrong that I'm a woman Christian speaker? Mm. And I feel like she's just validated me and helped me uh, have a clear idea of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. That's, that's what this past year has been. It's been figuring out this ministry of advocating for foster youth, for the foster care community, offering services. I do one hour consultation calls with foster parents, with people wanting to launch nonprofits for the child welfare system, for other people wanting to do advocacy and not knowing how to do it. And I just offer, I don't, like, I'm not a professional. I'm, this is just my experience. This is just my life. And I want to be generous with it because it's not my own, it's God's. So that's, that's what this whole year has been. It's been writing when people ask me to write, speaking when people ask, ask me to speak and being a part of the big C mission to move the mission of foster care, adoption and vulnerable youth and whole families to move it, to move it all forward. I love it so much. So I will link to your website, your blog, so that people can, you know, book you if they want to and reach out. And also I'll link to, in the show notes, I'll link to your um, Instagram and social media handles. Do you want to just share your website for people that aren't going to look at the show notes and they're just going to listen? So if you want to find me, Tori Hope Peterson, S-E-N, dot com and then that's also my instagram handle my email everything's the same very cool so people can look you up that way thank you um well this has been awesome i will link to all of your stuff i hope people follow you you just have an energy of like gold and love and it's totally right on to be a christian woman speaker rock star you know like (laughs) Of course, of course. So, and I think that you feel that because you feel light, you know, you feel light when you're doing things that are aligned. So I get that from you for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. 
anyways, I hope you really enjoyed Tori's story. She is incredible. And if you're interested, please make sure that you follow her. And she gives consulting. So go to her website and you can reach out to her about that as well. If you want a real foster youth experience and you can use that and, and make them a partner in your work. Okay. As you guys know, we have a giveaway going on. So if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you can be entered into a drawing to win the Stable Moments book, Developing Life Skills in Foster Youth for Healthy Transitions into Adulthood. And we have had so many reviews come in. I am just so grateful. This one, sometimes I don't know the names that these come from because they come from like a screen name. So this one is from screen name Kazil, insightful. I wish this information had been available during my teaching years. This could have helped educators to see into the lives of students as well as to be able to understand foster parents. Rebecca's passion for these families is absolutely inspiring. Thank you so much for that review. I look forward to reading more of yours and to the drawing at the end of this month where I can give one of my books away. Who's brave enough to wear an I'm a big deal shirt? I have my I'm a big deal shirt on right now. And if you guys are brave enough to wear it and to tell people why you're a big deal, then go to stablemoments.com store and get one of your shirts. They're unisex sizes. So there's one for everybody. If you haven't done so yet, please join us on the Facebook group. You can just search Stable Moments Podcast on Facebook and join our group so that we can have the conversation offline. I hope you guys stay safe and stay inspired. I will see you next week.